Nine Lives, the debut album from Catalyst, grips with infinite possibility and reflects the contemporary Los Angeles jazz scene. Catalyst is more than a nine-piece band. It's a collective of producers, composers, musicians, and writers who represent a who's who of the Los Angeles jazz community. You can listen to the album on all of the major music platforms or purchase a copy through bandcamp.com. Catalyst with a K, and the album is Nine Lives. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. While the potential for precision medicine has excited drug developers and clinicians with the promise of delivering more meaningful therapies to patients, the advent of these medicines has largely come in the area of cancer. As the understanding of biology of other diseases is better understood, efforts to develop precision medicines are advancing into new areas. We spoke to Rachel Lang. Managing Director of the Life Sciences Consulting Firm BioNest, about the state of precision medicine, what can be learned from the experience in cancer, and what it will take to make precision medicine approaches the way we treat diseases broadly. Rachel, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. We're going to talk about precision medicine, its success in the area of cancer, and what it's going to take to see precision medicine expand into other areas in a routine way. Perhaps it's best if we can begin with a definition. What does the term precision medicine mean? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So I think precision medicine... Well, it's always been defined um, by the outcome that it impacts. So we talk about the right drug at the right dose at the right time for the patient, which you know ultimately gets us to this point of giving patients the best and, and most personalized treatments for, for their given condition and, and the current situation. I think there's, there's a fourth dimension that's worth mentioning here too, and I think is an important component of everything we think of when it comes to precision medicine, is the, the idea of diagnosis. And so, of course, to be able to give the right treatment to the patient, we need the diagnostic tools that go beyond simply saying, you know, this person has cancer or even this person has breast cancer, but rather telling us this patient has breast cancer, they have a molecular alteration or an overexpression in the certain gene or protein, their cancer is early stage, late stage, um, they have certain other biological characteristics, and all this combined means we're going to treat them accordingly. And so I think this this element of diagnosis is, is really important, which also, by the way, applies to monitoring tools um, to detect recurrence earlier than imaging um, and to be able to change our treatment approaches as needed. So to me, it's, 
it's absolutely about the treatment, but also the tools to to select that that treatment, um, the right one at the right time. We've seen precision medicine reshape the cancer landscape, although I'm still surprised at how many patients face a passive surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy as if not much has changed. To what extent has precision medicine reshaped the cancer landscape today? Yes, that's a great question. Um, and, you know, it's, it's true. I think we talk about precision medicine a lot, and undoubtedly it has impacted positively a lot of um, a lot of aspects of, of cancer and cancer treatment, but but certainly not for every tumor type or, or in every situation. Um, I think w- when it comes to, to precision medicine and the impact it's had within the oncology space, I, I see it in, in a few dimensions, um, thinking, yeah, four, four dimensions here. So I think the first is what I alluded to in the beginning is around diagnosis. So it's really changed and still is changing how we diagnose patients with cancer. Um, it's, it's changed it by giving us a better and deeper understanding of what it means when we give a diagnosis. So we have a lot more information that we can provide. And also now with the advances in liquid biopsy and other tools, we're able to, to also diagnose people earlier, um, easier, faster. It's obviously still, you know, still being developed. It's not, I would say, implemented in, in all cases, but it is helping to, to sort of facilitate this, this diagnosis. And in many cases, we now, compared to 20 years ago, can provide a lot more information at diagnosis, biomarker status, stage of disease, which then in turn helps to to select the right treatment. Um, I think you know the the second dimension is is obviously the right treatment, and I think that stems from the the great sort of advances we've had in understanding the disease biology and the drivers of of many tumors. So there's been a lot of investment in understanding what's driving cancer, um, what's causing these cells to go out of control, which in turn has led companies to be able to identify the right targets and develop the the right treatments for for those patients. So that is that is definitely been a, a major impact. You know, as we mentioned, in not all not in all tumor types, of course, but um, but in many of them. And now we're even at a point where we see. For, for some of the hemological tumors, um, essentially individualized therapies with the CAR-Ts. Um, so this is, um, you know, this is sort of moving, moving even beyond what we think of as, um, as the targeted therapies, the small molecule targeted therapies. The other thing that I think is interesting when it comes to treatment, which I think it goes back a little bit to your point that some people do indeed still receive surgery and chemotherapy is that while that is true, there are tools now that can tell us when patients should be receiving these these types of interventions. So take take early stage breast cancer as an example here, um, and and indeed any early stage tumor. I think that there's always a question around how aggressively do we want to treat? Um, you know, will they benefit from chemotherapy? And oftentimes we are on the side of caution because we want to make sure that um, that we're doing everything. For the patients, and um, even though it's tough for them to endure, many of them do decide to go that route. But now we have tests 
genomic tests, so Oncotype DX is one of them, that can actually provide physicians with information on risk score and risk of recurrence. And so they can then decide and tell their patients, you know, you, we think you would benefit from, from some additional chemotherapy or actually your risk of recurrence is very low and you won't benefit. So while it's true people are still receiving chemotherapy, I think we also have tools to better select when and which types of treatments people, um, yeah, people need to have, which is obviously quite beneficial. What's enabled precision medicine in the area of cancer and, and how has that changed outcomes? Yeah, so it's, um, you know, I think the promise of precision medicine has always been to improve, improve patient outcomes. Um, so that's, and, and we have indeed seen, seen some dramatic effects there. I'm thinking of, you know, melanoma where, um, you know, five, 10 years ago, there was really nothing but chemotherapy. And now we have targeted therapies, we have immunotherapies, and it's really had an impact on, on patient survival and patient outcomes. So I think, you know, when I think about what, what's driven precision medicine in, in cancer, to me, there are three, three main aspects here. So one is what I alluded to earlier around a really deep understanding of the biology. So there's been tremendous investments in understanding cancer biology, a lot of programs investing in either genomics, proteomics, et cetera, to really try and understand what is driving these tumors, how do we need to, to target them, and, and getting to that sort of molecular level of understanding, which has provided companies the, the information um, to, to identify the druggable targets and therefore develop the drugs accordingly. So I think that's been one, one major driver. The other that sort of goes alongside with that is this really strong focus on innovative tools and technology and the adoption of these, both in the R&D setting, um, but also increasingly now in, in the clinic. And so these tools like next generation sequencing, liquid biopsy, other molecular um, molecular testing, and now even moving into things like AI, um, have been really integrated into R&D and now into the clinic as well. And so this is starting to become more and more standard practice. And so that obviously then enables patients to be, to be tested and for physicians to, to get the information they need to, um, to make informed treatment decisions. And the last I would say is advocacy. So there's been over the years um, quite a strong voice from patients, from the medical communities, even from the government to improve cancer care and improve treatment. And a big part of this has focused on advancing precision medicine. And so as a result, there's been significant investments and money and resources directed to, to this. And so that has really helped not only spur the, um, you know, the, the research and development of, of, the, um, of the treatments and the technologies, but also has helped improve access for patients. Um, you know, this is all well and good, but we need to make sure that it's available to all patients and not just in the hands of, of some of the top hospitals. And I think this, um, you know, a fair amount of this advocacy has has gone a long way to improving access, which is yeah is obviously critical to to getting this into every patient. 
it's been much slower to emerge in other areas of medicine. Why haven't we seen it more broadly adapted? And, and what are the barriers to doing that? Yeah, no, it's it's true. It, it has been much slower. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about this, and I'm not sure there's any one one reason that we can point to. And I know we're going to talk about a few areas um, and, and look at some examples. And, and to me, yeah, that I don't I don't see sort of a single reason, but rather um, sort of a constellation of reasons. I think, you know, stemming in some ways stemming from from the points that we talked about earlier that made this so successful in, in oncology. Um, I think when you look at some of the other therapeutic areas, we don't have the deep understanding of the disease biology like we do for cancer. Um, there hasn't been as strong a focus in um, in precision medicine. And I think, you know, the, the complexity of, of other conditions, other disease states um, is such that the t while we have great tools for understanding molecular alterations in cancer, not all of those may be completely applicable for neuroscience, for immunology, and they may require um, additional tools or additional types of measurements that we're not doing. And so I think we'll find that there are absolutely learnings from oncology, um, but there will be some, you know, some unique challenges or unique strategies that companies will need to take um, to be successful here. One area that there's been great hope about seeing precision medicine improve outcomes is neurology. I, I think here of Alzheimer's disease in particular, where are we in respect to seeing this change the way we approach neurological diseases? Yeah, you're right. This is an area that, well, would benefit a lot from precision medicine. Um, and people have been been looking, um, yeah, looking heavily to to see how we can leverage some of the, the tools of precision medicine. I think, you know, one of the challenging things when we think about neurology um, as a whole is that actually this space includes a, a quite a wide array of diverse conditions. We have neurodegenerative diseases. You mentioned Alzheimer's. We have motor neuron disorders. We have epilepsy. We have psychiatric conditions. And there's you know, even within one of those, there's quite um, quite a diverse or sort of variable manifestation of the disease. You can have um, early onset, late onset. If you take epilepsy, you can have all different, there's multiple different seizure disorders. Um, you know, same goes for, for nearly every one of these conditions. And so, you know, just like when we think about how oncology and the field of oncology has progressed. We don't talk about cancer as a whole anymore. We don't even really talk about breast cancer as a whole. Rather, we say this patient has early stage disease. They have lymph node involvement. They're HER2, um, HER2 positive. And all of those things combined give us the, the treatment approach that is best for them. And we're just not, we're not there yet when it, when it comes to many of these neurological conditions. And I think what's, you know, what's made it hard um, is obviously this variability, but also I think traditional precision medicine tools like genomics haven't really yielded as much success from a practical level. It's, it's obviously much harder to access neural tissues um, when patients are alive. 
And um, I think what we're starting to see is perhaps simply focusing on on genomics or proteomics like we have in, in oncology may not be enough. So for things like Alzheimer's disease, looking at can we detect sort of biomarkers, if you will, of small changes in behavior or, or for motor, um, you know, motor neuron or, or movement disorders, can we detect small changes in movement um, through, through apps, through AI technologies that perhaps we wouldn't otherwise notice to, to sort of, you know, a, a physician assessing a patient in the office. But if we track that over time, then perhaps that's a, that's a clue and can act as a biomarker. So I think I'm curious to see how the sort of how the intersection of digital technologies plays in here, because I think at least for some of these, it might be, um, yeah, it might be a, a sort of necessary dimension in addition to more traditional precision medicine tools that can help move the field forward. I've seen some development efforts around autoimmune conditions. What's the landscape in immunology? Yeah, immunology is an interesting one and quite a, a timely one, given um, that, that there's a lot of effort behind finding biomarkers for, for COVID, actually. Um, so immunology is, I think, also rather a complex, uh, a complex one. Again, you know, maybe similarly to, to neurology, there's um, a wide array of, of conditions that fall into here, autoimmune, infectious disease and others. And I you know, I think what we know about the immune system is that it's so complex. Um, it's so, it can be impacted by so many different things, our environment, the microbiome, our genetics. And so I think what we found is that it's, it's actually quite difficult to identify a single biomarker like you can in oncology. Um, and I think now we're, we're perhaps realizing that we might have to be a bit more broad when it comes to to precision medicine for immunology related conditions. Um, and in fact, what's interesting, if you look at what's happening in immuno-oncology, where this is sort of the intersection between oncology and, and immunology, it has been challenging to find a single biomarker there as well, because there is so much interaction from the immune system. So I think here, you know, people are looking at, um, Perhaps we can use some more systems biology approaches that integrate not just genomic and proteomic measures, but um, other, you know, other bi biological or, or patient characteristics that need to feed in here. Um, I think when it comes to COVID, what's what's interesting and it's a nice, um, almost sort of a nice validation of of some of the things that we we saw being successful in oncology, is that there's been very, very rapid um, and sort of intense focus on on finding biomarkers to predict patients who will have severe, um, ha you know, essentially have a severe COVID um, disease or, or end up on a ventilator or at, um, at the worst, you know, succumbing to the disease. And, um, you know, people have been looking at blood-based biomarkers, um, AI algorithms, but what I find so striking is the speed at which this happened. And I think it really speaks to the um, sort of the urgency around this, but also the, the collaboration between scientists, between companies, everybody sort of put their, um, you know, personal company agenda aside. And there's been a tremendous amount of collaboration, which 
I am sure has contributed to just the, the breadth of data that we're seeing now. The last area I wanted to ask you about was women's health. In some ways, this area saw some of the earliest advances in, in terms of cancer because of breast cancer and ovarian cancer. But beyond cancer, what does the area of women's health look like from a precision medicine perspective? Yeah, no, you're right. It it has, um, you know, w- within these, the oncology space, it has seen some great advances. I think beyond that, um, I think about it from from two perspectives. So one is is the area of women's health conditions that affect everybody, so cardiovascular disease, things like that, where until now there's been, I would say, the research has been much more skewed um, towards male inclusion in clinical trials, and and there has been um, a certain degree of bias against, or not against, but you know, in, including women in trials and therefore, um, you know, treatments and, and treatment approaches have been based, I would say, more, more on male than female inclusion in clinical trials. So I think that is, that is one part of this where I think we're now at an understanding that perhaps for some conditions, we need to be considering, um, you know, doing things a little bit differently. We know that women and men react um, to, to various conditions in in different ways and so that i think is is the awareness is now there that that perhaps wasn't before this the second part is is really on um conditions that that impact women um and i think here we've you know and until recently i think we suffered a little bit from lack of lack of advocacy lack of awareness um, and also lack of, you know, un- I think that translates a lot of times into perhaps less of a focus on on understanding disease biology um, and things like that that we talked about for oncology. I think now what's what's exciting is that we're seeing quite a bit of focus here. So there's research groups. There's a women's precision medicine program actually at UCSF that's um, you know investing in this area. We have a fair amount of women's health companies like Cellmatics and others that are looking um, to using these precision medicine tools of genomics and proteomics to inform discovery efforts, which hopefully will yield new treatments. Um, and I think an overall awareness for precision medicine here. If you look at something like reproductive health, I think, you know, there's until quite recently and, and even now today still, treatments are are fairly standard there's no way to predict in many cases which treatments patients will need um which treatment is right when they'll need it um and these you know these treatments can be expensive they can be burdensome um and i think only now are we seeing some some tools arising to to help um to help better Sort of better personalize those treatments. I think a lot of the the treatments, well, a lot of the drugs tend to be how have been around for for quite some time now. Um, but there are companies out there looking to try to to pinpoint, okay, what you know, can we better understand the timing? Can we better understand how and when to use these drugs in these patients? Going back to the uh, the initial definition of at the right time. So that we can, you know, start classifying our patients a little bit more 
and starts um, pinpointing what what is needed rather than just using a one size fits all approach, which um, we know from from other areas like oncology is is not always the best way to go. So I think you know women's health. I I I believe there is now this push um, and sort of advocacy behind a lot of these um, these conditions and a lot of these issues, which seems to be moving the field forward, both from a, a sort of medical and patient advocacy side of things, but also pushing for increased funding um, for for researchers and also for the the companies themselves, which is a positive. I spend a lot of time talking to the folks who live in this world who are doing the science and the innovation. Uh, and I'm always surprised when I talk to a doctor and even in the realm of cancer, they, when they speak and seem to operate in perhaps a world of medicine in which they were trained rather than the world that I think exists today, how much of an obstacle are doctors to adoption of precision medicine? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a it's a good question. It's funny. It reminds me. Um, several years ago now, I was at ASCO and I I was talking um with some with some people there and and I actually asked the question, "Do you think this is going to change how doctors and we were talking about oncology in particular? But how, do you think this is going to impact how um, oncologists are trained and sort of educated going forward? Because when we think of of you know medical school and and the training it's it's always aligned to the organ so we talk about breast cancer or we talk about lung cancer and you know sort of brought up this idea could we in the future instead of being a um, a lung cancer expert could we actually be a um, a her2 expert or a BRAF expert and um, I remember at the time it was met with some <laughs> some skepticism. I think some people were were open to it, but um, you know I think it was it was definitely mixed mixed reviews. Um, that being said, I think we we are moving towards that. I, I I the way I see it is is it's not so much doctors are an obstacle. I think it's more that the adoption of precision medicine requires. Um, requires proper education. And I think especially in, in areas where we're not used to dealing with these technologies, they're not integrated into, into the practice or into the hospital. I think then it, it speaks to the fact that the pharma companies and the diagnostic companies have, you know, have a, an important role to play here in driving education and driving awareness and, and ultimately helping to support the access um, to, to these tools. You talked about the, the educational responsibility that mm -hmm. the diagnostic and drug companies have. What role do you think players have in advancing precision medicine? Yeah, no, absolutely. They, they have an important role as well. Um, you know, it's, it's, as I said, it's one thing to have the, the tools, uh, or to develop the tools and, and to have them um, sort of in theory in the labs, it's another thing to make sure that they're accessible um, and affordable for for everybody. And this has been a main a major focus over the last few years. That you can you know you can look at the um, 
the different ASCO tracks at the, the annual meeting and, and over the past few years, there's been an increasing focus on, on access, on payers, and a big part of this is, is related to, to precision medicine and diagnostics. Um, and what's interesting is that our clients that we work with are, are seeing the importance as well. And so now, you know, we've, over the, the last few years, we've been working a lot in the diagnostic space for companion diagnostics and, and other diagnostic platforms. And, um, you know, access strategy is obviously a core component of a, of a drug uh, commercialization and launch plan. But now we're, we're doing that specifically for diagnostics, which tells me that, um, you know, payers have a really important role in this, um, in this whole equation. And ultimately they need, they also need the education to, to make sure that they are being, um, you know, they're being made aware that they're understanding the value. And so when faced with, um, you know, with, with an ask for testing and some of this testing gets up, um, into the thousands that they are, they are clear and, um, yeah, clear in the value and making sure that that is reimbursed or that's covered in some way. Um, because without that, we won't get to, to the right drugs. What will it take to bring about a world of precision medicine broadly? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's, I think it's a few things. So I, I, I guess I, I sort of go back to, to what we talked about in, in the beginning, what we've seen successful from, <clears throat> from oncology. And I, you know, I think that there is definitely this un, so th this need for a really deep and sort of underlying understanding of of the disease biology, but that is made possible by awareness and advocacy and translating that into um, into funding into investment. Um, you know wh when you look and I remember working in in oncology, you know quite a few years ago when. You know, the question then was, okay, you know, should we be integrating precision medicine into our pipeline? You know, is do we want to to approach drug drug development in a precision medicine way? And now that question is is essentially always yes, right? In oncology, that is how how we do things these days, um, and um, it's it's becoming sort of second nature. I think that mentality still needs to maybe to, to become sort of the reality in, in other areas. And, um, you know, it's, it's not, I think it's taken some time to get there, right? Because I think a lot of people sort of initially think, oh, precision medicine, you know, that's great, but I'm cutting my patient population in half or am I cutting it in a quarter? Not all, all the patients who want to get treated will be applicable, or eligible for therapy. You know, is that, is that the best way forward? Um, but on the, you know, on the other hand, I think if, if we do it right, then we're making sure that patients are getting the, the right treatment and you're avoiding unnecessary treatment that won't work. And so I think there is definitely a, a, an important component of, of education and making sure that we're, we're doing this appropriately um, and, um, you know, and with the understanding of the benefits that it brings. Um, so I think, yeah, for, you know, for outside of oncology, I think it really is a mix of, um, 
of making sure the investment is there, but also making sure the, the sort of understanding and awareness is there as well um, to push that when it does become a reality, to push that into everyday, um, yeah, everyday care and not and make sure that it's not left in um, in the big institutions or, or in the lab and not getting to the patients in need. Rachel Lang, Managing Director of Bioness Partners. Rachel, thanks as always. Thank you so much, Danny. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.